Good morning. The boys are handing out uh, an outline for this morning's uh, study. And this is a new chapter in our uh, study of the doctrine of the, of the church, the doctrine of, of Scripture. And it is about the Trinity, God in three persons, the Trinity. And the question that our teacher asks is, how can God be three persons, yet one God? It's one page. There is another page, but I'm not giving it to you yet. <laughs> the uh, Dr. Grudem teaches this series in four hours. And... Um, so I haven't decided quite if I'll go into the detail that, that he does, but uh, it will be several lessons at least. So um, I didn't bother you with the second page of the outline yet. But you can get that outline online. Uh, this, is a, this time, this outline is straight word for word from what he did. I have a teaching outline that I have my embellishments and uh, details, but, but we're going to roughly go over this outline. Here's the, the thesis statement. And there is one God and only one God. The one and only God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of these three persons is fully God. And so we're going to take a number of lessons, the Lord willing, going through that very basic statement of Christian belief and explain each one in detail and also we're going to talk about what it's not because there are lots of wrong ideas both inside Christianity and outside Christianity as it has to do with this doctrine of the Trinity. It's a difficult subject to explain um, and not just from my perspective but from everyone that I have uh, studied, including Dr. Grudem, um, it's difficult of explanation. And one of the reasons that it's difficult is because it's, to some degree, it's a mystery. And so I thought we would talk a little bit about a mystery. What is a mystery? Well, a mystery is something that is hidden, at least partially hidden. It may be something that is unclear in our thinking, in our reasoning. A mystery is something that um, is perhaps known to one, to one person or one party and, and not fully known to the other. So there are, there are several mysteries that God gives us, and He calls it that. So if you want to do a very interesting word study all on its own, study the word mystery as it's revealed to us in God's Word. Now, there is one important thing about mystery is that it's not just a cop-out. That is, you know, we could say anything we don't understand, we could just say it's a mystery. And, and sometimes people say that and they imply, well, don't try to understand it because you can't understand it. Well, that's not what I'm saying. Because God has also said that he has revealed to us mysteries. And some of the mysteries that have been revealed to us are revealed to us in Christ Jesus. So that things that were previously hidden have now been made known. 
And God is making known to us in each of our individual lives uh, deep things about God. And he says that he will make things known to us even as we seek him. And so I would urge the families here to to accept this challenge. Take the scriptures that are given here and the topics that are given here concerning the Trinity and wrestle with them over the next few months and and have discussions in your home about what these things mean, what what is true about these things, what is not true, things that you've heard that perhaps are either partial truths or just completely false and and wrestle with these things. And I think that you will grow. I think that we'll all grow as we do that. The doctrine of the Trinity is progressively revealed in Scripture. What that means is that God gives us a part of the truth over time as we go along. And the fascinating thing about the Trinity is that it, it's revealed to us in the first chapter of the Bible. And, and it goes from there. So there's a partial revelation of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And then it is brought very specific and uh, very plain in the New Testament. And yet there are still parts that are difficult to understand. The word Trinity is not used in the Bible. And so that fact causes some people to say that it's a made up concept and it shouldn't be followed or it shouldn't be adhered to. But I'm telling you, this is one of the most important doctrines that we find. Why, why is it important to know the truth about the Trinity? That God is only one God and yet he exists in three persons. I think that it's because God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him and he has revealed himself to us through the scripture. And so he wants us to. To understand more about him. In the discussion that we've had immediately prior to this, we, we were talking about the character of God, the characteristics of God. What is God like? And I found it very helpful in my own walk with the Lord and my own understanding of God to really dig in and, and try to figure out what God is really like in each of these characteristics. And this is like an extension of that question, what is God like? Who is he? How does he express himself? How is he in his very existence? So, for example, we studied that that God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. And, and all those things about God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace and God's wisdom, all those things about God. And now we are coming to the full realization that each one of those characteristics applies fully to each person of the Trinity. So sometimes when we think about God and we use the word God, we normally or naturally think about God the Father. 
But in the course of this discussion, this study, we need to be thinking about all of the persons of the Trinity having all of these characteristics. So when we say that that God the Father is omniscient, we can also say God the Son is omniscient and God the Holy Spirit is omniscient. Let's look at the first scripture perhaps in the in the Bible that indicates that God is more than one person. Let's look at the word God found in Genesis one twenty six. Actually, the, the word God appears even before that, appears in the very first sentence of Genesis. And if you look at that, it's the same word as the one here. Um, the reason I've chosen this scripture is that it goes further. It goes a little bit further. So when we look at at the word God, in the beginning, God, what word is that? Elohim. Elohim. The very interesting thing about Elohim is that it's a plural form. So, so there is a singular form of this word. The root form is El. And we're probably all familiar with that. El. The name El is just God. God. And the, the primary form or the primitive root, they call it, is often combined with other words or other phrases to make, to make a combination word. So, for example, I named my son Daniel. And, and that name has a meaning. And so, the root word L is in that name. And that root word L means God. So then the question is, what does the rest of it mean when combined with L? Well, the word Dan means judge. And so, so the word Daniel, the name Daniel, means God is judge. Or the implication, God is my judge. And so you see, the, the root word is singular, L. There's a, an expanded word, Eloah, and that also is singular. And that is used of God, a singular reference to God. But Elohim, Elohim is plural. That means more than one. But, but, but the critical thing is that we have only one God. And so the, the, the mystery, the mystery of this name, Elohim, is that it refers to one God, but then why plural? Well, it's a, it's a word that God invented to describe himself. And he gave it to his servant who wrote the scripture. And I believe there's a purpose. I believe there's a purpose that God uses a plural name to name himself. 
In, in Genesis 1.26, then God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so we have a pronouncement and it's a conversation. It's a conversation. And it is plural. All the words in this sentence are plural. So the reference to us indicates more than one. In our image indicates more than one. In our likeness, more than one. But we know there's only one God. This phrase is used again in Genesis 3.22. After the first sin, when, when God was declaring that, that, that man would have to be expelled from the garden, He said, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Like one of us, it's plural. In Isaiah 6, 8. Isaiah is in the presence of the Lord in the temple where he sees the the Lord in the temple. And he says, also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So it's referring God referring to himself in the plural. Psalm 45. And I'm going to go through several of the verses in this psalm, not the whole thing. In verse 1, my heart overflows with the pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. So in this psalm, the psalmist is extolling the king. He's praising the king or or giving, uh, saying nice things about the king. This king is greatly favored by God. And we know this psalm as a, as a messianic prophecy, as a messianic adulation. So we're talking about the Davidic king, that is the king who will come and take David's throne. And so here's a psalm describing something that's going to happen in the future because of the promise that there would always be a king on the throne of David, the, the forever king. We're talking about the forever king here. So my heart overflows with the pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. And then in verse 3, we see throughout this psalm that this king is being addressed or spoken about. And that's very critical in our understanding. So, for example, in verse 3, gird your sword on, high, on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So this is the psalmist making this statement as if it were made to this king, to this future king. Gird your sword on your thigh. Verse 4, in your majesty, ride out victoriously. Again, the psalmist speaking about the king as if he's addressing this future king. And then verse 6 is the critical part. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
And so clearly here identified is this future king is God. God himself is the future king. So this is a scripture that clearly identifies the Messiah as God. Not just a messenger of God, not just a representative of God, not just someone um, created specially for a job, but this is God himself. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then in verse 7, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Again, that's addressing this future king, the, the Messiah. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So this is a very clear picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So in this psalm, the psalmist is extolling the king who's greatly favored by God. And, and here's a kind of an aside. In the Old Testament, when the word God is used, and, and even in the New Testament, when God is used by the translators, usually it's a reference to either God the Father or God as the Trinity. God the Father or God the Trinity. Usually when you see the word Lord, in the Old Testament, Lord is a reference to Yahweh. That's the proper name of God as God revealed it to his people. For example, Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. Yahweh was given as the name of God. In the New Testament, Lord usually refers to Jesus Christ. Usually, but not always. And sometimes we see the word translated Yahweh. Sometimes we see Elohim. Sometimes we see Lord um, as Adonai or Kyrios. And so there are distinctions that come in that and we don't always get the full, um, the full intent of the scripture unless we go back and look at those at those at those names at the at the words that are used but what we do see in verse 6 is that both the person being addressed is called God your throne o god this is this is said to the person to the future king who's being addressed and the one so that both the person being anointed is called God and the person doing the anointing is called God and it's the same word same word in both places the name Elohim is used obviously talking about two different persons and some people have argued against that proposition and they've said well no both in both the, the alternative argument is that no both places they're talking about God the Father but then I would say well, what do you do with Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 where it very clearly says what we're talking about. Let's look at Hebrews 1.8. This is a discussion about 
the special relationship of God the Son to God the Father. And it's specifically distinguishing God the Son from angels in this discourse. So in verse 8, Hebrews 1, 8, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness, of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And we've seen that scripture before. This is a quotation of Psalm 45. And it's also repeated in other places, like in Isaiah. But the interesting thing about Hebrews 1.8, it tells us who, who is being identified. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God is a description of the Son. But of the Son, he says, and this is what God the Father is saying, by the way. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so we see a, a specific adoption of the, of the truth that God the Father, even in the Old Testament, is calling the Son God. God the Father identifies his Son as God. And Hebrews 1.10 goes on, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a a footstool for your feet. So here in Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 10, God the Father is plainly speaking about God the Son. And this scripture that he identifies as a description of God the Son is a quotation from Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Here's what it says in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So. So God has taken three references here from the Old Testament. Three places where there's a reference to God and the writer of Hebrews says plainly, this is what God, the father says about God, the son. He calls him God. And you'll remember that Jesus actually used this scripture, Psalm 110, to challenge the Pharisees on one occasion. Does anybody remember what that was? He was talking to the Pharisees. Let's look in Matthew 22, 41. This is an example of a time that Jesus Christ used Old Testament scripture to prove who he was, to announce to people who he was, to announce to us who he was. 
And, and particularly, I want us to notice the response of these Jewish experts in the Scripture. What was the response of these Jewish experts when Jesus challenged them with Psalm 110? Matthew 22:41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, and here's where he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And here's Jesus talking again. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And here's the response of the Pharisees who were experts in the scripture and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. (laughs) This is the last question they ever asked him. I'm telling you that this doctrine of the Trinity is essential. It's essential to our faith. It's essential to our understanding of who God is. And we'll notice that the people who could not answer the question were unwilling to answer the question. They didn't have any explanation for it because it makes no sense unless Jesus is the Son of God, is God Himself. That's the only reason, that's the only way it makes any sense. And they weren't willing to admit that. They They weren't willing to understand that. They couldn't understand that. It's spiritually discerned. David even... Jesus even says, David in the spirit called him Lord. Maybe even maybe even David didn't understand fully the word that God had given him to deliver prophetically through this psalm. But we do know that it was spiritually discerned, it was spiritually given. So even here, where the relationship between the Father and the Son is being beautifully given... In a, in a mysterious kind of message, we're told here that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is involved in delivering this message, in delivering the Word of God. The Holy Spirit enabled David to explain the truth of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in his psalm. As he was out on the mountaintops just worshiping the Lord. Or maybe he was in his room at night in one of those times that he couldn't go to sleep. (laughs) But the Spirit was speaking to him and through him. There are also other scriptures in the Old Testament that show that the Holy Spirit is God. So... So we've seen quite a few scriptures that that talk about God, the son being God, fully God, even acknowledged as God by God, the father. And there are scriptures in the Old Testament that show also that the Holy Spirit is God. In Isaiah chapter 63. The Lord Yahweh is speaking through the prophet, through the prophet Isaiah. 
And the first part of the chapter 63, he is recounting the history of the Lord's working in his people, Israel. And so he's talking about how how many wonderful things God did for the for his children. Amazing things, miraculous things. And then in verse 9 it says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Most of the commentators that I've read say that the angel of his presence is a reference to the very uh, of God himself that that God personally visited his people and put forth his own right hand his own strength against the people of Egypt for example when he delivered them it, it's it's the only place in the scripture that that I can tell that this phrase is used, the angel of his presence. It's so closely associated with God the Father, with God himself, that most people think that that is a reference to God the Son. Anyway, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But here's how they, what they did. Verse 10, but they rebelled. They rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So here's a specific reference to the Holy Spirit. Way back in the wilderness of sin. The the time when God led the people out of Egypt and they rebelled. And the Holy Spirit was grieved. And so we see that that there's not only an identification of the Holy Spirit, but that he has characteristics of personhood. He has emotion. He has, he has decision-making um, characteristics. He sees something and is upset about it. Not just upset, but grieved. That's a very deep, deep, uh, response. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So here we have God who has saved the people and brought them out. And now God is fighting against the people because they have grieved the Holy Spirit. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? So we see perhaps the first instance where it's specifically stated that God, the Father, sent the Holy Spirit. I think there, there, there were probably other places where that actually happened. Certainly, even in creation that happened at the very beginning. But, but this is the basis for the idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. 
God the Father sends the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Malachi 3. Verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. In this passage, there are two messengers, two messengers. They are compared and contrasted here. And the first messenger is revealed to be John the Baptist. The second messenger, the messenger of the covenant, is equated with the Lord whom you seek. So the second messenger is the divine Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he is coming to cleanse some and to judge and destroy others. So, so I think that this is an example of, of God the Son being called the messenger of the covenant. And it also shows his, his role as judge and as redeemer. In Isaiah 48:16 the scripture says draw near to me hear this from the beginning I have not spoken in secret from the time it came to be I have been there and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Here the Lord God as is seen as distinct from the one who's sent. So the Lord God sends. And it says that he's sending two. He's sending me, it says, and his spirit. So if if the spirit is simply a part of God, if it's simply a description of the power of God and not a person, then why would he be sent? Sent specifically. So we have in this one scripture in Isaiah 48, 16, the presence of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as distinct. And, and that's because the, the general interpretation by, by scholars is that the person speaking in this passage is Jesus Christ, the Son. So he's talking about the fact that God the Father is sending the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And they wouldn't be joined by the conjunction and if they were the same being. If they were the same, if they were the same person, I should say. Also, one thing to note, it, throughout this discussion, I find myself using the terms improperly. Um, and, and perhaps part of it is because of the limitation of our language and, and the way we generally speak about these things. I want to go, go back to the beginning, to the thesis. There is one God and only one God. And the one and only God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of these three persons is fully God. And I find myself slipping sometimes and I say, I say part when, when I mean person. <clears throat> and it's because our minds are finite, I believe, and the, the one that we're describing is infinite. And so one of the things I want to make sure that you all hear from me is that each of the three persons, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, is fully God. They're not individually part of God. Not part. Each one is the whole. And that's the reason for the question at the very beginning, how can this be? <laughs> how can this be? It is, and one of the things that we need to also think about is that God is who he is, no matter what we think about it. So, so if God tells me clearly in his word, this is who I am, this is how I am, this is how I exist, then who am I to say, no, you don't? That doesn't make sense. See, that would be a foolish thing to say, wouldn't it? And yet, we have quite a few heresies and misunderstandings that have come along through the centuries because of that very thing. Because of people who want to define God under their terms, in their terms, and not in the way that God has revealed himself. And so, you know, and I made this huge mistake when I, you know, 25 years ago, I, I remember clearly when I was presenting a message in uh, children's uh, ministry, and uh, the leader of this group asked me to present this message about the Trinity to children. And so I had a little book, and it had an analogy. And, in the, and I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want to uh, confuse or distort by repeating the wrong thing. But there was an analogy in there that I wholeheartedly presented to the children. And now I come 25 years later, and this teacher says, you know, you really ought not to do that <laughs> because it's a mistake, and it was part of this heresy over here. And so, and so I think that to some degree, each of us has certainly heard uh, these false arguments. And to some degree, many of us have embraced some or all of those false arguments about the Holy Spirit and about the Trinity, about God the Father and God the Son and their relationship. So our teacher, Dr. Grudem, says... Don't even do it. Don't even go there. there he, said, he says this statement. There's no analogy that works. 
what we have to do is, is have our understanding from the Scripture. The Scripture itself will tell us the truth. And there's no other analogy that will do, that, that anybody that, that I've ever seen uh, is very good or, or that he's ever seen uh, is very good. And, and, and one of the reasons that the analogies fail is because it seems in our reasoning like an impossibility. It's an impossibility in our reasoning. It doesn't especially fit our Western logic. And, and we're going to go more into that and discuss some of the problems or, or the problems of understanding. And we are going to talk about, I think, um, I mean, I'm going to have to really pray about this, about how to present the heresies. Um, sometimes we may not want to uh, confuse things by presenting the things that are wrong. And yet, it may be important to understand what people have surmised and what people have said so that we perhaps can identify within ourselves wrong thinking that we've adopted. So... I think because it's a mystery, um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to understand it. I think it means that we need God to understand it more. We need God's direction. We need God's spirit in us as we read his word to make it come to life in our hearts and in our minds. And we need to dig deeper. When there's something we don't understand about the scripture, we shouldn't back away from it and say, oh, well, it'll all work out, I guess. I don't need to know that. No, we want to press forward. We, we want to go into it. We want to wrestle with these things and, and fill ourselves with the Scripture. And there are, I'm telling you, there must be a thousand Scriptures in this one lesson. It, this is a big topic. It's not obscure. I think we might make it obscure in our thinking because it's hard to deal with. <laughs> but it is not obscure. There are lots, there's lots of light that is shed on this topic. Let's briefly go in the, in the few minutes we have left um, through some of the references about the Trinity in the New Testament. Because I want you to know that there is plentiful evidence uh, in the New Testament that shows us that God has existed eternally as three persons. See, this wasn't just one of the... Well, never mind. God has existed eternally as three persons and there's lots of, of truth and, and lots of places... There are lots of places in the New Testament. Let's look at Matthew 3.16. This is a very well-known scene. It, it's visual to us. I also had the benefit of seeing this on a children's movie. <laughs> Matthew 3.16, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So if you want to talk about something that's crystal clear, something that is like lightning striking in the history of mankind, this would be it. 
here we have Jesus going into the water to be baptized by John the Baptist. And we have the baptism has just occurred and he's standing in the water and the heavens themselves open in front of all the witnesses. There were people standing there watching this. Jesus' disciples were there watching. And visibly, something comes out of heaven. And it appears to be a dove. So this dove comes straight out of the clouds that were opened up and the dove sits on Jesus. And then an audible voice comes that people can hear. A voice out of heaven. And what does the voice say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So who does God the Father say Jesus is? His son. And he did it in a miraculous way. He didn't leave it to our speculation. And I think it's important that at this very critical time in the ministry of Jesus, that the Trinity was there, physically there together, as well as in spirit. <laughs> the, the spirit appeared. But, but since the spirit is spirit, it appeared as something else. It appeared as a dove. But it wasn't symbolic. That dove was really there. <laughs> that dove was there. And in Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. These, are, these three are identified as distinct and important and all to be acknowledged. And, and how can you baptize someone into something that is not God? That would be sacrilege, wouldn't it? For example, for example, if he had said, baptize them in the name of God the Father and the angels and the priests. Or God the Father and the angels and the patriarchs. Wouldn't, that would have been very wrong. That would have been against God. Because the very thing that is being done is, is a dedication and a, 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 a show, a sign of the cleansing that, that is happening when we, when we submit to God in baptism. We identify with God and we submit to Him. And we show that he is our Lord. And so to, to be baptized in some name other than God would be a sin. It would be wrong. And, and would, Jesus, would Jesus have told his followers to baptize in, in, in a way that was wrong? No. Would he elevate, would he elevate for example, the Holy Spirit as God? If it were not God, no. So Jesus is clearly identifying here that the Holy Spirit is God and is worthy of worship and worthy of submission of the Spirit to the Holy Spirit. 
Another example where we find the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and God the Father in the same pronouncement or the same scripture is in 1 Corinthians 12.4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. So here we identify the Holy Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And this is a reference to Jesus Christ. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. And so we see here not only the mention of the three persons of the Holy Spirit, but we see that each one has his own function or his own role in this ministry of the gifts. Each of them has a unique identity and function. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it's a, it's a parting, um, like, like the opposite of a greeting. It's when you're leaving, right? Benediction. That's the word. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So we see that the, that the author, Paul, is pointing out to them that, that their well-being, that their well-being is found in each of the persons of the Trinity. He's identifying each person of the Trinity and showing that they are unified. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, that is, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And finally, for this lesson in Jude, Jude one twenty. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that's a reference to God the Father. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And so we see that this, that this author is also pointing out the distinct persons of the Trinity and their distinct functions or roles. I think that we'll stop there for this morning. And and I would really encourage you all to search these scriptures and the other ones, as you see uh, further down the page, to 
to prepare for these discussions that we will have, the Lord willing, over the next few months. I think it's a, it's a joyous thing to think deeply about the truth of God and to, to challenge my own assumptions, to, to hear from other people. And so as you have thoughts about these things, especially if you hear me say something that you question, you know, is that really the way it is? Uh, let me know. I've decided not to open this up to question and answer in this format because I'm not smart enough. <laughs> um, but I do want to hear your input and your questions, and uh, I'm sure you all are well-read and, and have heard lots of great things, and I might be able to take some of those things and incorporate them into this series of teachings. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown us so many things through the Spirit, through the Son, that you are truly God in three persons. And we worship you, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We pray that you'll give us hearts of understanding spirits that are sensitive to you and Lord, that you would satisfy us with your immense wisdom. Thank you in Jesus name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.